0: I'm Gordon Stewart, pastor of Westminster Church and moderator of the Town Hall Forum. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. The intent of the Town Hall Forum is to provide a platform to encourage public discussion of key issues from an ethical perspective. The events of the past week in Oklahoma City underscore the importance of that discussion for us all. The character of today's speaker can be seen in an 11-year-old girl on a school playground in Cleveland, Ohio, who wanted to play first base in the summer softball league. The coach told her that she couldn't do it because she was too small and the other kids needed a bigger target at first base. But she never let up on me, says the coach. Looking back on it, she kept asking and asking and asking Finally, there was no saying no to her. I let her play first base. The coach never regretted it. She was terrific, he said, a real spark plug, never stopped talking, never let up, a real Phil Rizzuto type. The 11-year-old on that playground was Donna Shalala, and the coach, who was no match for her persistence, was none other than George Steinbrenner, and together they won the city championship that year. (laughs) Secretary of Health and Human Services Donna Shalala believes in herself. She also believes in us and in our potential. An advocate for the rights and well-being of women and children, she is a pragmatist who wants to get things done and who sets her mind to the task. Before her appointment to the Clinton administration, Secretary Shalala taught at Bernard Baruch College of the City University of New York and Columbia University. She served as Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Research in HUD in the Carter Administration where she was the first to address discrimination against women and children in housing rentals and mortgage lending. Following her service in the Carter Administration, she was appointed to the presidency of Hunter College, becoming the youngest woman ever to lead a major US college, and subsequently became the second woman after Hannah Gray of the University of Chicago to lead a major research university when she was appointed Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. As Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Shalala oversees the Department of the Federal Government responsible for the programs relating to health, welfare, food and drug safety, medical research, and income security programs serving the American people. The department provides direct services or income support to more than one in five Americans. To celebrate National Infant Immunization Week, Please join me in welcoming to the town hall forum someone George Steinbrenner never forgot, nor will we, the first baseman from Cleveland, still short, and a champion for the rights of others who otherwise might not be allowed to play the game, Secretary of Health and Human Services Donna Shalala.
1: Thank you, Pastor Stewart, for that gracious introduction and, of course, for your leadership uh, here. And thank you for that very warm welcome. I can tell there are some badgers out there. It's great to be back in Minnesota, home to some of America's greatest gifts, home, of course, to the women's final four, but uh, also home to two of my good friends and top advisors, David Elwood and Peter Edelman home to the spirit of citizenship, home to the progressive legacy, and of course, home to that great American, Hubert Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey once said, what we need are critical lovers of America, patriots, who express their faith in their country by working to improve it. You are those patriots steeped in the purest Minnesota tradition. You are discussing and debating bridging gaps and finding common ground to move us forward together. And this week, National Infant Immunization Week, Minnesotans are stepping up to the plate once again. All around this state, citizens and community groups and business leaders are organizing drives to vaccinate children. The Minnesota State Health Department is fanning out community centers, parks and hospitals and homeless shelters and health clinics, anywhere parents go with their children. And they're asking the question, 11 shots by 2, how sure are you? Believe it or not, we do a better job in this country immunizing cows and chickens than we do immunizing children. Right now, only two-thirds of all two-year-old children are properly protected against crippling diseases like polio and diphtheria, leaving millions of children vulnerable to national disasters like the measles epidemic just a few years back, which struck more than 55,000 people and took 136 precious lives. And so today, I challenge all of you that are here today or are listening on the radio to gather up all of your love for children and direct it to this country's big immunization campaign. Now more than ever before, we need to renew the community spirit that defines us all as Americans. As the cowardly terrorist bombing in Oklahoma City makes all too clear, there has been a lot of commentary about the loss of innocence in middle America as a result of the attack. Less commented on, but equally worth noting, are the middle American values that carried us through last week, values like family and faith and sacrifice and community. We honor the many noble heroes who have emerged, the government employees reaching out from the moment of the blast to offer helping hands to anyone and everyone in need. The rescue workers, the law enforcement officers, the religious leaders, the healthcare professionals, and of course, the families and the children touched by this tragedy. And so we join here today and in town halls across America to tell our children that we will protect them. We join to heal our country, to reaffirm the core values that bind us together as Americans and to recommit ourselves to solving the greatest issues of the day, as Americans should, with reasoned dialogue and calm listening. And so I've come today to talk to you about one of those issues, welfare reform. As the welfare debate continues in Congress, as it continues in your state capital, and across this country, There is one principle that everyone agrees upon. The status quo must go. We've all heard the tragic statistics. Every year, 200,000 teenagers get pregnant. 14 million people, 9 million of them children, receive AFDC at a cost of over $22 billion. And $34 billion in child support payments go unpaid but we can't afford to get so caught up in the numbers that we forget the human dimensions of this challenge. Behind every statistic is a face. The face of a terrified and desperate single mother. The face of a bewildered laid-off worker. The face of an innocent and hungry child. We believe that real welfare reform must be about strengthening families. It must be about protecting children. For more than two years this administration has worked to create a strong foundation of personal and economic security so that families can thrive. If you read our record, we've expanded the Earned Income Tax Credit to give a raise to working families and to lift millions of those working families out of poverty. We helped to create more than six million jobs. The Family and Medical Leave Act is the law of the land. Head Start is better and stronger than ever before. And our children have a better shot at healthy futures. Thanks to our unwavering commitment to WIC, to child care, to Healthy Start, and to preschool immunizations. That's what we call real family values. And that's what we call a strong first step towards real welfare reform. Lifting families so that they don't become dependent in the first place. The next step, of course, is a bill, a piece of legislation. And let me start by telling you about the President's approach. We believe that first and foremost, real welfare reform must be about moving people from welfare to work. It must be about a paycheck, not a welfare check. It must be about creating better jobs, not longer unemployment lines. It must be about protecting our children, not punishing them because their parents happen to be poor or young. It must be about creating jobs, creating opportunity, creating hope, and creating futures. The President's approach to real welfare reform reinforces three core American values. Work, responsibility, and preventing teenage pregnancy. Let me talk about work first. We believe in a simple compact. If you make a commitment to work towards self-sufficiency, We'll make a commitment to help you reach that goal. We'll expect responsibility and offer responsibility in return. We'll demand that you work or train for work, but we'll help clear out the roadblocks that keep people from getting jobs. I'm talking about investing in education, in childcare, and in healthcare. These are the kinds of supports that are necessary to strengthen, the typical entry-level job, not just for welfare recipients, but for all working people in our society, not just welfare recipients, and to make work a better deal than welfare in this country. We need to make the entry-level job a steady springboard to independence. That's real welfare reform, and that's why this president achieved major gains in the earned income tax credit and is fighting to increase the minimum wage. At the same time, we believe that welfare should be a temporary hand-up, not a way of life. That's why the President has consistently called for a time-limited system, a transitional system that helps everyone move into jobs. Real welfare reform must also be about promoting responsibility. From day one of this debate, we have insisted that child support enforcement must be a cornerstone of any serious reform effort. We must make it clear to everyone on welfare, both men and women, that having a child is a lifetime responsibility. It is simply not acceptable for parents to walk away from the children that they help bring into this world. And we know that every child is better off when both parents provide love and nurturing and support. It's time for us in this country to send the message loud and clear. If you're not providing for their children, if you're not providing support for your children, we'll go after you. We'll garnish your wages, we'll suspend your driver's licenses, we'll track you down across state lines, and if necessary, we'll make you work off what you owe. At the same time, we also must demand responsibility from teenagers. The current system allows teenagers to drop out of school and use welfare money to set up an independent household. It's called the emancipation of minors. It's nothing of the sort. It's a perverse incentive for young mothers to throw away their dreams and their futures. And it's wrong. It's time for us to require teens to live at home, to go to school, to identify the fathers of their children. That's the right way. But it's also the humane way, the smart way, to help them start down the road to healthy, productive lives. And if we are going to end welfare dependency, we also need to get serious about preventing teenage pregnancy in this country. We believe that to be most effective, welfare reform measures should work with a commitment to teaching young people to say no to sex and yes to opportunity. We need more abstinence-based programs that offer a holistic approach providing health education activities and counseling that help young people stay in school and make the right choices and build the right futures. Work, responsibility, preventing teenage pregnancy, that's our vision, and we believe it's real welfare reform. I wish I could say the same for the bill that passed the House by the Republicans last month. As you can imagine, I've been answering countless questions about the House Republican welfare reform bill. My answer has always been the same, what reform? To paraphrase Mark Twain, the House Republican bill is as different from real welfare reform as lightning bugs are from lightning. That's because when you slash $68 billion from a range of programs that help low-income people buy food and clothing for their children, you can't call that reform. When you cut out money for childcare and provide no resources, a big zero for education and job training and job creation, you can't call that reform. When you undermine our vital protections for children who are abused and abandoned and neglected, you can't call that reform. And when you say, and when, over five years, you cut more than $900 million from this state's programs for needy families, which is what the plan is, including nutrition programs and programs that help disabled children, you can't call that reform. When you cut off all benefits to teenagers under 18 and punish innocent children for their parents' past mistakes, you can't call that reform. And when you say that dumping people off the welfare rolls is the same as putting them to work, you can't call that reform. It's too bad that the House missed an opportunity to be helpful and instead came up with a bill that's weak on work and very tough on kids. But there is some reason for hope. The Senate's now taking up welfare reform and working to improve the House bill. We believe that in the Senate, common sense will prevail. And we can strike, we believe with them, a bold, balanced, bipartisan approach that works for everyone. And we believe that on July 4th, the Congress can honor the principle of independence and honor the president's request and send him a bill in the American tradition, a bill that promotes work and responsibility. We will do it for our communities. We will do it for our families. We will do it for our children. And we will do it for our future. Because ultimately, when the accounts of this extraordinary period in American life are written, history will judge the welfare debate by whether we upheld core American values of work responsibility, and fairness. History will judge us by whether we made sure that everybody who can work does work. History will judge us by whether we protected children and gave them stronger futures no matter where they lived in this great country. And history will judge us by whether we were bold, but not extreme. History will judge us by whether we were tough but not cruel. And most important, history will judge us by how we conducted this and every other debate. Did we honor the Minnesota spirit of citizenship and civility? Did we build upon the Westminster Town Hall tradition of dialogue and discussion? did we talk to each other, not only as taxpayers, but more importantly, as citizens. So as we leave here today, let us remember the words of Hubert Humphrey who said, the moral test of a society lies in how it treats those at the dawn of life, the children. Those at the shadows of life, the ill and those in the twilight of life, the old. That is our challenge today. That is our obligation, and that must be our commitment for the future. Thank you very much.
0: You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. The ushers in the hall will collect the questions from those of you here in the hall on the yellow cards. And those of you who are uh, needing to get to back to work or to another place here in the hall should feel free to leave at this time. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. Those of you in the radio listening audience may call in a question by dialing three three two three four two one. You have been listening to Secretary of Health and Human Services, Donna Shalala. Secretary Shalala, if you would return to the podium, we will begin the period of questions. With regard to your, your uh, comment uh, about how history will judge us Um, I can imagine that some would uh, affirm the statement but would respond that um, it depends on the us and whether the us is the American people or the federal government and that the debate is about the the respective roles of federal government and state governments and local governments. Um, Is the debate about federal programs for the poor and the elderly and children about who should do what, or is it about something else?
1: Um, I actually don't think it's about who should do what, because we can work out an agreement of that. We go through these cycles in American politics in which we centralize or decentralize. The American federalism debate is important. Our states are very different than they were a generation ago. Uh, It is about something far more fundamental than that, and that is, should justice be dependent on geography? It's a debate about who we are as a people and um, how we define ourselves. Should the fact that a child is born in one part of the country mean that they go hungry because the state in which they're born uh, doesn't have very much resources, or the politics of that state at the time Um, is very anti the poor, or should the quality of a child's opportunity be defined by American values and Americans contributing to a pot, their national government, and then letting the delivery of the system um, uh, be uh, dependent on how the state wants to organize the effort. And I think the debate is, is quite fundamental, and it's not just about which level of government can provide something better but whether there are certain things that we believe as a people ought to be present because it defines us as a country. The elderly are, are of course, another example. Should um, uh, how someone lives uh, to the end of their life be determined by where they happen to live in the country and which family they've been born into? We've made some of those decisions uh, by building a consensus over two or three generations. Uh, So it is very much a fundamental uh, discussion that we're having today.
0: Someone asks the question, our our governor wants to eliminate programs that provide home and community-based supports for people with chronic illnesses and disabilities. Are there any current federal initiatives to ensure support for people who need assistance in order to live and work in their communities?
1: Uh, there are. Uh, one of the difficulties of home and community based care is getting a handle on the costs of it. And uh, the Medicare program is uh, involved in demonstrations across the country for adult day care, for uh, home and community uh, uh, based support, looking for ways in which we can provide health care in a much more supportive, family based way as opposed to uh, moving large numbers of people into institutionalized care. It is something that has developed over time. I very much think is the wave of the future. But states themselves are having trouble financing their shares out of their own taxes. And what we need to do is to find a balance uh, in terms of financial responsibility. But we should not stop our exploration of more humane ways to provide for care uh, for people who are ill. And that means uh, alternatives to institutionalized care.
0: Can we expect anything in the next session of Congress on health reform?
1: I think so, but again, it will be very much like welfare reform, and that is, will it be real health care reform? Is slashing a uh, half a trillion dollars from the Medicare and Medicaid programs real health care reform? Is eliminating choice uh, from um, Uh, millions of uh, senior citizens in terms of choice of doctors real health care reform. And the debate will be over how we can contain costs, get some insurance reforms, expand coverage, but at the same time maintain what has been a compact for quality health care for millions of Americans who have contributed to this country uh, over their lifetimes.
0: One person asks, isn't business in the best position of creating jobs? How can government work to cooperate and maximize jobs available?
1: Well, I think it's a partnership between business uh, as well as government. And one of the important dialogues that has been taking place in this country between this administration and the business community is what is it that we have to get off of business back, so to speak? What is it? What kind of barriers are in the way of creating jobs, of making sure that the American economy is more competitive. Clearly, our investments in education and training, upgrading uh, the quality of the preparation of our workforce is a very important contribution that both the states and the federal government make uh, to uh, help improve uh, the business climate in this country. Eliminating regulations, the reinventing of government that Vice President Gore has been leading, Um, we uh, we are in the process and it's been going on for at least uh, two years now, of reviewing every regulation of the federal government to see which ones are unnecessary and don't achieve what we're trying to achieve, uh, to try to relieve both small and medium and large businesses so that they can be more competitive and so that we can make the kind of investments uh, that uh, will help to create more jobs, more good jobs in this country is what we're really after.
0: There are two questions here that seem to me uh, to be related. One asks about the the respective roles of the federal government and the states. What role will the states have in promoting welfare reform? Uh, It says it sounds like the president's plan is mostly based on federal programs. And then there's a comment and a question. Um, Marsha Montessori established her progressive preschools to aid the women who were factory workers in Italy. Can't we get some comprehensive child care system for working families? Mm-hmm. This would be money well spent is the mm-hmm. comment. Can you comment on a, a little bit further on um, what appears to be one person's point of view that we ought to establish a national program mm-hmm. And the other, which uh, is that we, we are shouldn't to establish the a national program. <laughs> yes, yes.
1: Let me, let me say that the President is committed to a decentralized welfare delivery system, to some national standards, national protections for children, uh, for other vulnerable populations. Uh, but those standards can be limited because we believe in a limited federal government. Uh, The people of Minnesota know best how to shape programs that will help move people from welfare into the economy and to keep them uh, in the economy. What the federal government must do is provide resources and tools and a much more limited level of standards, much less micromanagement. Standards that would make sure that no child uh, falls below the poverty line in this country. Standards that make make it very clear that work requirements ought to be at the centerpiece of any welfare reform. Standards that make clear that we ought not to have a welfare program in which you're better off on welfare than you are in the workforce. And I think that we will be debating with the Senate about how minimal those standards can be and how much accountability we need in the system. But we feel very strongly, the president as a governor feels very strongly, that we ought to have um, a a new system in place that's fundamentally different in its psychology, that's worker support as opposed to keeping people on a system uh, that that leaves them in dependent positions for all of their lives. and uh, that deeply affects their children and uh, their children in the future. On the issue of childcare in this country, we have a highly fragmented childcare system, but needs to fit better with the working life of Americans, uh, both men and women. Um, And the establishment of some kind of a public-private network of childcare, of high-quality childcare has really been the goal of the national government uh, for a very long period of time. It is both a resource question and a commitment from the private sector uh, which understands that if we're going to be supportive of families, we need high quality childcare. Of course, the tragedy of Oklahoma uh, City was it was a a childcare center based in a building with large numbers of federal workers, a childcare provided conveniently a high-quality child care center, which is exactly the kind of center that we've been encouraging businesses to provide, as well as the federal government itself. I don't believe either in health care or in child care this government will ever have a top-down, government-run system. What we are going to have is a public-private partnership. What we need to make certain of is that every worker has access to high-quality child care. For high-income workers, it may be that the tax system is the way to provide that kind of support. For low-income workers, it means an investment in subsidies for child care. Either way, it is a national goal and critical to the kind of workforce we see in the future and the kinds of families that we see in the future.
0: With regard to the part of uh, the President's program having to do with pregnancy, what is what is your view of trying to change behavior by withholding money, such as AFDC grant increases for second children? Will this approach work?
1: I think trying to get teenagers to do anything you want them to do is tough. <laughs> I think most parents are willing to try anything. We've got to begin with the clearest possible messages to our young people about the inappropriateness of behavior um, and and. And, and our, our government programs should not provide incentives uh, to, um, to make young people believe in any way that we think that the behavior is appropriate, or that they're going to get a free ride uh, once they make um, uh, the decision to go ahead and have a child. Nor should we interfere once a, child, once a teenager gets pregnant with the decision to have the child. I do not believe that we should be forcing, nor does the president, we should be forcing people uh, into certain kinds of choices. Those are individual decisions to be made by individuals uh, as well as uh, in consultation with their doctors, as well as in their families. And they ought to be free to make those choices. But we shouldn't have incentives in place that make young people believe that they can set up households if they have a child that independence is tied to having that child, and that that support will come from the national government. Our welfare reform proposal says to America's teenagers, if they get pregnant, that they must stay at home, or if that home is an abusive situation, they must live with an adult, that they must finish high school, and they must get into the workforce as quickly after that uh, as is practicable and that they will have two years after high school to get some education and training, but then they must get into the workforce and support their child. Our message also says that both parents are responsible. And if we're talking about two, na- two teenagers, that both are going to be held responsible until that child meets, uh, reaches its adult years. The concept of responsibility of both parents, the concept about Not allowing any teenagers in this country to think that it's an easy thing to do and that they will be better off having a child too young has to be a very strong centerpiece of any approach. But all of us have to be consistent, not only parents and communities, but the media and everyone else that sends messages to our young people.
0: One member of the audience. Observes that there are th- there are thousands of childless couples in the United States who go great distances and spend large amounts of money to adopt a child. Rather than requiring teenage parents to live at home, is there a way to provide incentives to those parents to put the children up for permanent adoption in U.S. homes?
1: Um, there are adoption procedures in this country. The states uh, work uh, very carefully on these kinds of issues. We've just. Uh, uh, implemented a, a new law that will make it easier uh, for parents to. Uh for
0: for those of you in the radio listening audience, excuse me, sir. Excuse me, we, uh, we have invited Secretary of Health and Human Services, oh. Donna Shalala, to speak. If you have a question or a comment, you can please uh, print your question on a card or you will be removed from the hall.
1: think we ought For to. those of
0: do you wish to respond, Secretary yeah. Shalala. I,
1: I think it's very important that all of us uh, pray for our brother here and are respectful of his views and of those who are in great pain.
0: The best and the brightest man, my brother, is
1: dead. I think if you
0: will, friend, I'm sorry, I think... If, you can, if we can be quiet for just a minute, no. I think there is an answer to the person's objection about r- think a misunderstanding the, of what the secretary actually said. Uh,
1: I think the, um, um, the gentleman, our brother, is uh, referring to uh, a comment I made in line with a book that was written called The Best and the Brightest, which uh, is a term that was used by... Um, Uh, A group of people who made decisions about the Vietnam War, it was a term that they used to describe themselves. They were, of course, uh, uh, the elites in this country, the decision makers who made decisions about uh, sending my friends and uh, many of your sons and brothers uh, uh, to a, a very controversial war. The point I was making in that statement was that um, these people who called themselves the best and the brightest did not send their own children to fight that war. And in fact, um, uh, in the conversation with the reporters, we pointed out that the real best and brightest were those that fought uh, the war for um, um, for Americans. But the fundamental point I was making is that when we fight a war in this country, all of us ought to go. We ought to have consensus in this country that there ought not to be a draft deferment that allows the children uh, of parents who can send them to college or to medical school, there ought not to be an exception that we all must go. <laughs> and I'm afraid, uh, uh, Pastor, that uh, I had forgotten that half the people in this country were born after the Vietnam War and did not remember David Halberstrom's book, The Best and Brightest, and didn't re- realize that the reference was to the elites um, as opposed to making any kind of uh, derogatory comment about very brave men and women who served in Vietnam and who protested uh, the war because we must honor uh, those on, uh, uh, that were here who had deep concerns about the war as well as those who served with great distinction. Thank you. Thank you. Now, where were we?
0: Yet that, well, if I can just comment, uh, during that period, I, I was a campus minister in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and um, worked with many students who were opposed to the war and then realized that there were many Vietnam vets who were returning to the campus mm-hmm. at Whitewater and who were living together in the vet's house and who were utterly rejected and scorned and spit upon uh, and uh, uh, responded one evening to someone who co- the bartender who called me to tell me that someone who had been involved in the My Lai Massacre was at the bar and, and hysterically crying and asked if he could bring, bring him to the house. It was at that point that I realized what a tragedy we had on our hands. And it, it's not a matter of pointing the finger and blaming. We need to pay attention to the needs of all of the people of this country. And uh, can you you comment further on the kind of division that uh, remains from Vietnam, and of which this uh, episode today is uh, evidence?
1: Well, it has uh, has haunted this country, and in some ways it's time that we face it so many years uh, later. Uh, This this nation was torn apart by a war, uh, and people are currently making comments on whether they gave the President of the United States the best advice or didn't give him uh, the best advice. I think the important thing for all of us is what have we learned? We've learned that we must have consensuses in this country when we take huge steps. We learned that those who make decisions about sending young people um, into highly risky situations ought to um, uh, be our parents and have, uh, be take, making those decisions about their children as well as everybody else's children. We've learned that uh, wars ought to be fought by all of us, whether we live in small towns, whether we come from wealthy backgrounds or from poor backgrounds. We've learned that we must ask very hard questions before we make decisions to enter into conflicts. We learned that as a nation, we must come together uh, when we need to take a great step or have a great debate and work through our differences and have as open a discussion as we possibly can. Um, There are important lessons. They are painful lessons. I came from a neighborhood um, in Cleveland, Ohio, where a large number of my friends that I went to school with, it was a working class neighborhood, uh, went to Vietnam. My closest friends didn't come back from Vietnam, and yet I was one of the young people that had very deep concerns about why we were there, but none of us should in any way um, say anything Uh, That would dishonor those who chose to serve uh, in that war or any other war in which this country uh, uh, was represented. That is an important statement for all of us, no matter what side we were on, in the Vietnam War.
0: Thank you. What What are some other parts of the federal budget that could be looked at to cut the deficit so that we can avoid penalizing children?
1: Well, the important point I think on children. Uh, is that there are some national standards, some national things that we believe in, and we need to go through the federal budget and uh, to eliminate programs in my own department, there is, in fact, extra administrative layers. We need to take a scalpel uh, to our own programs. We also have to share some of this pain. If we really are going to reduce the deficit, we really are going to get as close as we possibly can to a balanced budget, then we have to look to and ask the question of every federal program and every state program and every local program, do we need this at this point in time? The tendency in the system is when we need to do something, we add it on as opposed to dropping something off. And we need to bring common sense and thoughtfulness to everything that government does. We can do that and protect the most vulnerable people and keep our commitments on Social Security, on Medicare, and on Medicaid. There is waste in the system. There is fraud in the system. And we ought to eliminate that waste and fraud, and none of us ought to defend every single program and say that it's perfect. We've got to be willing to take a hard-nosed look at every commitment we have. We have to do that as citizens. We have to do that as taxpayers. We have to do it so that we have a future for young people. I believe we can do it. The president believes that we can do it. And at the same time, protect the populations that both the national and the state governments um, have made a commitment to. I do not believe that we need to dismantle um, uh, our commitments uh, to senior citizens in this country and to our youngest and most vulnerable uh, citizens, but I do believe that we're going to have to be hard-nosed. We ought not to be defending programs. We ought to be defending our values and our commitments uh, to provide genuine opportunity to people.
0: I understand that you have been instrumental in a program for girls at risk of early pregnancy in conjunction with Hunter College. Would you please tell us about this?
1: A decade ago, um, a young professor who was an expert actually in sex education came to me and said, I have an idea for a holistic program that would help to reduce the amount of teenage pregnancy in some of the low-income neighborhoods in New York. And what he did was design a program with the Children's Aid Society in New York that provided jobs and tutoring and um, sex education that was done with parents and with parents' permission, uh, working with parents. Um, The program also uh, was so supportive of young people, we wanted to make sure that low-income young people had the same kind of dreams and ideals that could be fulfilled that that middle and upper income uh, kids had. So what we did was we guaranteed, if the students finished high school, uh, that they would be admitted to Hunter College. So there would be a goal at the end of the line. The program has been so successful in reducing the number of of young people in this community, and two tough communities in New York, that um, uh, the parents actually came to us and said, hey, if we finish our high school degrees, can we get into college too? And so what we have is a generation of parents and their children dra- graduating from uh, New York's public colleges because it was a family-based support effort uh, that, uh, that worried about the entire family and worked with families and was respectful uh, of families, but held the young people to very high standards and expected them to work very hard. And it's been a very successful program. What we've learned from that, is that that successful programs are labor intensive. If you want to change young people's behavior when all these crazy things are whirling around them, you need to work with their families. They need to have genuine opportunity. Good schools, um, job opportunities, uh, something at the end of uh, all this hard work, like the opportunity to go to college. Young people in low-income neighborhoods aren't much different from young people in middle class or suburban neighborhoods. They need things to look forward to. They need things that, uh, uh, that require that they discipline themselves on the road to success. And that's what we tried to put together in a wonderful partnership between a private nonprofit agency and uh, a great uh, public uh, university in New York.
0: Secretary Shalala, we have time for just one final question. This forum is uh, about conscience and uh, where it comes from as it engages key ethical issues, and it's a personal thing about uh, the people that we bring here and what makes them tick. When you left Hunter College, you said that you needed a new challenge. You said just because you're comfortable and good at what you do doesn't mean you're still learning, and that's why you left Hunter College, to take on the challenge of a new job. What's the greatest challenge to you at this point in time, and what drives you to take it on?
1: You mean other than turning around the Badger football fortun- fortunes, well, right?
0: <laughs> one person did ask that question, yeah, right? I just no, did <laughs> um,
1: This is a terrifying period for those of us who have spent our careers committed to providing opportunity. The, the differences are so stark between what some people believe is um, uh, social policy ought to be for the future and what others believe. I think that there is a consensus there that the American people are decent and want to provide genuine opportunity, but they also don't want people to get something for nothing. Trying to find that compromise means that we have to go back into our fundamental values. The biggest and toughest part of Washington is you can't survive there unless you arrive there with a commitment to the Constitution and you have a set of personal values. What you can't do is arrive there with a set of commitments to individual programs and to program constituencies. So trying to see through what is sometimes a very vicious debate to make sure that at the end of the day, we have done everything we can to preserve what I would describe as what it means to be an American, that there ought to be something at the core for everyone who calls themselves and is a citizen of this country. And that opportunity may mean for some babies uh, some help uh, to their mothers uh, in nutrition, and for others a chance to get a college scholarship. But there are some things that bind us as a nation, our belief that every child ought to have opportunity, a belief that people at the twilight of their life, ought not to be worried about whether they have enough to eat or about their own health. And I think that if these things come apart on us, we'll have a very different country. And that, that is really um, what I'm trying to do during what is uh, perhaps one of the most exciting periods in American history, but at the same time, probably the most terrifying. Thank yes. you very yes. much.
0: Thank you. Secretary Shalala, thank you for encouraging us to restore the torn fabric of the social fiber which was evident here in the hall today and from which we are still reeling from events in Oklahoma City, for laying at our doorstep our responsibility to one another and to others for the health of this society that we all love so much. Our prayers and our good wishes go with you and with others who have made the sacrifice of public service on our behalf. And we will be keeping our eyes on first base at Yankee Stadium just in case your old coach gets a better idea as to how to buy a championship. Thank you for joining us for the Westminster Town Hall Forum.